it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, February the 1st, 2023. Easing into a brand new broadcast month here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Then for free around the clock on our podcast after the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, your one-stop shop for all of it. If you're interested in that podcast, you can go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And I just want to say thank you, one and all. If you're a podcast listener, we just really blew away our record on monthly downloads. Let's keep doing that. Thank you, everybody. But GuyBensonShow.com, that's the website. You can also follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. That's the social handle. My personal handle on those two platforms is at Guy P. Benson. It's Ladies' Day here at the Guy Benson Show. Here's the lineup. Kim Strassel joining us this hour. Jessica Tarloff here in the next hour. And kicking off our final hour, Katie Pavlich. So... A stellar lineup. Looking forward to having all three of those conversations. There's a lot to get to on the show today, including an FBI search at the president's Rehoboth Beach residence. That was happening today. They're saying they didn't find any classified materials there. That's what the lawyers are saying, at least for now. I guess we finally found a place where there isn't classified material where it shouldn't be in an office or a home controlled by Joe Biden, if the nothing-found story holds up. We'll get some reaction coming up from Kimberly Strassel on that. There's some talks today between the president and the Speaker of the House. I'm not really expecting much there in terms of a real outcome or a resolution. There's still months to go, I think, in that whole process on the debt ceiling. And then some breaking news just earlier today. The College Board has now altered their curriculum for the AP African-American Studies proposed coursework. This suggestion that they had said, you know, we're going to try this, we're going to do a few dozen pilot programs around the country, all very secretive. We've been covering this. uh, We were a leader on this issue, on this show, dating back weeks. Florida rejected the curriculum based on an element of the curriculum, and then challenged the College Board to reconsider some of the more ideological left-wing stuff in there and then come back for another bite at the apple. And we just found out just minutes ago from the New York Times and other sources that's what the College Board has done, and they have, it seems to me, at least at first blush, vastly improved upon the previous iteration, which would be a victory for Governor DeSantis, and I would say for the students in Florida. We'll have more details on that coming up later in the show. But in another piece of news, let's start with this. It emerged last night that Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina and former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under President Trump, will be, as expected, announcing a run for the presidency in 2024 
on February the 15th. So that was an exclusive scoop at one of the major newspapers in South Carolina. The event, reportedly, will take place in Charleston in mid-February, so two weeks from now. And Nikki Haley will be, it seems, the second person to throw their hat in the ring. Of course, former President Donald Trump announced in early November, mid-November of last year. And it's been all quiet on the Western Front here for a while. And then Haley's going to jump in, it looks like, in a matter of days. They've got February 15th circled, multiple sources confirming that this was happening. And then I saw not long ago, just this afternoon on social media, some posts from Nikki Haley on her official accounts inviting people to a big announcement on February the 15th. So, you know, it's happening. It's the it's happening Ron Paul gif, if you know what I'm referencing. That's what I'm envisioning here. And we'll see how Governor Haley, Ambassador Haley, rolls out this presidential announcement and this campaign. A few thoughts just out of the gate on this. And, of course, we will consider her announcement and, you know, the way that she unveils the campaign in due time. But just some initial thoughts from yours truly. First of all, it's not a surprise at all. It has been clear, I think, for months that she has been building toward this. She's been hinting at it. She'd been tweeting certain things that very much seem like the type of things that someone who's going to run for president might tweet. She gave that interview that we talked about with Brett Baer not long ago, where she was basically saying, stay tuned. She's been teeing this up for a while. She was, in my view, a successful governor of South Carolina, and she will probably run through that that roster of success and that resume that she would point to in the Palmetto State. I think she led that state through some difficult times and some wrenching debates, and I think she did it well for the most part. She was also, as far as these things go, an effective ambassador at the U.N. on behalf of the Trump administration. I think the U.N. is broken for the most part, right? Like it's you look at the types of countries that they put on their women's rights commissions and their human rights commission and all of that. It it's sort of a sick joke a lot of the time. And we'll comment on it here. But the U.S. does have a role to play, sometimes a big one at the U.N., especially in the Security Council. And Nikki Haley, some of her finest moments, I would say, were standing up to the world, standing up for our allies, standing up for the United States, standing up for Israel, shaming the world, shaming the global community and a lot of people at the United Nations for some of their just craven and or morally repugnant votes. A couple of those speeches were really tough as nails. So you look at the domestic experience, multi-term governor of a significant state, And then the foreign policy chops, I mean, it's certainly a compelling resume. You add in that she's a woman of color, daughter of immigrants. She has a pretty great American story. Nikki Haley has also endured some really gross attacks in Republican primaries in the past, you know, whisper campaigns, I think some stuff that really only women deal with for the most part. And then a lot of vitriol from the left. We've talked about it before. We even played the sound of uh, the lunatics over at The View going after her, supposedly for having an Americanized name. Well, Haley, if I'm not mistaken, is her married name. And Nikki is literally on her birth certificate. 
And some of the people who've criticized her for this, is saying like, oh, well, you know, look, she's trying to, she knows that her supporters are racist, so she's making her name sound more American. I, I just think that's a horrible line of argument to begin with, and she has pushed back hard every time. It's like, ew, look, assimilation. That's really the crux of that critique. That also happens to be factually wrong and has been perpetrated by some people at The View, for instance, named Sonny and Whoopi, just to pick two, who themselves obviously use names that are not their given names, unlike Nikki. So she's drawn some derangement on that front. A few other points on Nikki Haley, and I'll just say she's been a guest on this program multiple times. I know her a little bit. When I was a fellow at Georgetown, she was one of our guest speakers. I've had a breakfast with her when I was down in Charleston, actually, for a friend's birthday. Adam and I were down there, and she saw we were in town, and she set up a breakfast, just the three of us. And she's very nice, very charming. And we actually talked about 2024 at that breakfast a little bit. And I'll actually get to one of those points in a second without betraying anything. It was an off-the-record breakfast, but you'll see where I'm going with this. For the most part, I like her. She's sort of a conventional well-rounded conservative, out of a mold that I typically like. I think she will be an effective fundraiser. She is good at raising money, important part of the game. She has also spent the last number of years collecting a lot of chits around the country for Republican candidates. She has worked very hard flying all over the place to campaign with Republican candidates for various offices at all sorts of different levels and help them raise money for their campaigns as well. So she's got some people who don't necessarily owe her but are probably grateful to her in a number of ways. And whether she's going to pull in a bunch of those endorsements or just have people not endorsing against her, we'll see. But she's probably engendered a fair amount of goodwill among a lot of people who have been Republican office holders in recent political cycles, that could matter. Am I skeptical that she can break through? Because you look at some of the polling, she's nationally at 2% or 3% in some of the polls. I've seen upper single digits, maybe 8% in some of them. She has something of a base, clearly. And there's a lot of people who like her. I think there are people who are maybe more in the establishment wing of the party, who like her on some level but feel like she caved way too often to Trump, then there are Trump supporters, Trump loyalists, who feel like she has been disloyal and sort of floating in the wind when it comes to Trump. When it seems like the conventional wisdom and the winds are blowing against Trump, she's gone in that direction. And then when she thinks, okay, wait, maybe that was a mistake, she's sort of beaten a retreat back to get in the good graces of the MAGA crowd, I think that there is some fairness to that critique. And one thing that she's going to have to deal with, and I'm not sure how she's going to deal with it, is something that she said and has said multiple times, and this is is a reference back to the breakfast I had with her months ago. This was something that she said publicly, not just privately. Here it was, April 2022, Haley out in public talking about 2024, Here's what she said, cut 21. 
if he decides that he's going to run, would that preclude any sort of run that you would possibly make yourself? I would not run if President Trump ran. And I would talk to him about it. You know, I mean, that's something that we'll have a conversation about at some point if that decision is something that has to be made. So she had said unequivocally, if Trump runs for president in 2024, I, Nikki Haley, will not be running for president in 2024. She said she would support Trump. That's what she, she's like. She said it. Now, Trump, of course, has been the only declared candidate now for months. He's running. So based on the standard that she had laid out previously, publicly, you would think she would be a Trump supporter falling in line. And we saw in South Carolina, Trump was just there over the weekend. He's got the governor on his team. Lindsey Graham is backing him, it looks like. But Nikki Haley, who had said, if he runs, you just heard it. If he runs, I'm not going to run. Well, he's running, and now she's about to announce, reportedly. So how she's going to reconcile all of that, I don't know. And I think it actually goes to that, that concern, the weather vane issue, that some people have about her. This is not a personal thing. I like her. I'm just trying to give you analysis. Now, for his part, Trump was actually asked about Haley and her possible run. This was over the weekend, and I think he actually handled it pretty well. Listen to Cut 11. What do you well, think Nikki Haley that? made the statement that she would never run against our president. I believe Mike did, too. But my attitude is, you know, if they want to do that, they should do it. I had a good relationship with all of them. Nikki Haley called me the other day. To talk to me and talk to her for a little while. But I said, look, you know, go by your heart if you want to run. She's publicly stated I would never run against my president. He was a great president. I'd never run. Did she call you? Would it tell you that she was going to be running? No, but she called me. She said uh, she's, she'd like to consider it. And she was letting you know? And I said, you should do it. So, I mean, look, he's pointing out a few times there, not subtly, what she said, which she did. Trump is right about that. He's like, she said she wouldn't do it if I ran. I'm running. But she called him. She talked to him. And what he says is he told her was, follow your heart. If your heart tells you to do it, you should do it. She said, uh, he said, I think Mike said the same thing. It's unclear if he means Pompeo or Pence. He said he had a good relationship with all of them. He's basically saying let a, a thousand flowers bloom. By the way, which actually benefits him. The more people get into this race, the better the chances are that he wins the nomination. Because he's got a large, loyal base. And if everyone else is eating up little slices of the pie, that helps him. So I think he should be exactly this sort of generous and magnanimous, even if he doesn't mean it. Strategically, it helps him. So he's just pointing out, she said she wouldn't do it. Now she's doing it. She called me. And, you know, if your heart's in it, go for it. Very restrained response from Trump. Kind of different from what we heard his reaction to someone else who hasn't announced, which I think is interesting, possibly telling. But those are my overall thoughts. We'll see how she positions herself on February the 15th. You can circle that date. We'll see if this maybe touches off a stampede of candidates getting in. Everyone's been looking around, waiting, it looks like. A guy like DeSantis, we've heard, might wait months because of the legislative session he's got to take care of as governor. But it sounds like Haley's getting in. She'll make the big announcement. She will put her best foot forward, and we'll see how that goes. I'll be watching with great interest, especially on how she handles that Trump issue.
Ball's in her court, and I think we should all be open-minded. That's my overall thought about Nikki Haley. February 15th. Let's take a break. We'll come right back. Just getting started on today's edition of The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So according to the official schedule... I mentioned this in the last segment. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy are supposed to be meeting right around now about the debt ceiling. And I know that there's been some hype ahead of this. And let's just say I'm not all that invested in whatever's happening today because I suspect very little is going to happen today. Maybe I'll be wrong. I don't think so. With the actual deadline for real with all the extraordinary measures, whatever they call it, the Treasury Department, not expiring until June, the idea that on February 1st, McCarthy and Biden will get together and figure something out, it's just there's no chance of that. Because officially, right now, the White House position is no negotiation. So I guess this isn't a negotiation. It's just a talk. And McCarthy says, well, actually, hell yes, you will be negotiating, but he doesn't really have an actual ask yet. He doesn't have negotiating demands because the Republicans haven't gotten all on the same page on that yet, which is something that they're going to have to do and might have trouble doing, quite frankly, as I've talked about before. And there was the usual, like, pre-meeting political positioning and skirmishing. I guess the White House sent McCarthy, like, a staff memo. And then McCarthy went on to social media saying, no, I'm interested in a real conversation with the president, not some sort of memo from his team. So that's just, you know, some political stuntery and maybe the White House trying to diminish McCarthy a little bit by being like, oh, here are my underlings with a little memo for you, Speaker McCarthy. Good luck with that. And McCarthy saying, no, you know, treat this more seriously. I'm here to talk. I think this is just the first of many meetings and discussions that will play out for months. That's sort of the lay of the land, as far as I'm concerned. Could they shock the world and come out with an agreement? I, like, I honestly think there's zero chance of that. <laughs> so, I guess stay tuned. Kim Strassel coming up next. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Chugging ahead on the Guy Benson Show, Wednesday edition. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. With us now, Kim Strassel, Potomac Watch columnist at the Wall Street Journal, member of their editorial board, a Fox News contributor, best-selling author. And Kim, it is always great to have you here. We appreciate your time very much. It's great to be here, Guy. Thanks for having me. All right, so the FBI was at the other house, this one in Rehoboth Beach today, searching for classified documents. We found out that this was happening earlier this morning. And reportedly, according to Biden's lawyers, they didn't find any of that material there. Of course, they had found multiple troves of these documents at the Wilmington house. And I just wonder, first of all, do we actually take them at their word that nothing untoward was found today because – It seems like they've been hiding the ball a little bit on certain things as it has suited them over months, quite frankly. 
And this is now the second thing in the last couple of days that we've learned, Kim, where they keep talking about their transparency, how open they've been. And then it's like, oh, well, actually, we just failed to mention a previous FBI search that happened in November. Uh, That happened. Sorry, CBS got to that first. And and now the follow-up in Rehoboth today, it just seems like this has been unfolding in a very sloppy way that almost feels designed to undermine faith in what they're telling us. Yeah, I mean, it's. I would say that it's unfolding in a way that they uh, didn't expect because clearly the reasons they have not been telling us this stuff is because it didn't necessarily play into their perceived or the narrative they wanted to give out, which is that we've been fully cooperative, we've really been calling the shots here, etc. Now we find out that the FBI was far more involved than anybody knew, uh, that searches were taking place. And so, as it is, their lack of transparency is coming back to bite them, as is often the case. But can I just quickly, here's the thing that all of this brings up to me, though, because it's this question that just continues to nag at me, is that the Journal had a story a couple of weeks ago saying that the FBI and DOJ and the Biden team had got together and everyone had decided it would be better if the Biden team conducted the initial search at his house in Rehoboth Beach. Um, Because the FBI, according to the story, was concerned that if they jumped in too quickly with searches and search warrants, et cetera, that this could complicate later investigatory efforts. That didn't make any sense to me, and it makes even less sense now because, as you note, it turns out that very quickly after those documents being found at the Penn Biden Center were found, the FBI was there doing a search, which raises the question yet again, why on earth – were those lawyers allowed to go do those first searches at the president's home and Rehoboth Beach? Yeah, like the sequence makes no sense. So the story goes, they found, like just stumbled upon while cleaning out this office, and there were lawyers there for some reason. He sent his lawyers to clean out his office. Okay. And they find some top-secret material, marked classified stuff at very high levels. Uh Uh-oh, it's a week before the election. They say that they uh, quickly told the National Archives, handed it over, and the National Archives told the DOJ. Then they just sort of skipped ahead to the revelation months later, well after the election, that any of this had happened. And, oh, well, oops, here's some more stuff found in the Wilmington House, and some more stuff found in the Wilmington House. Oh, wait, some more stuff found in the Wilmington House. I guess the DOJ is going to be here after all at the Wilmington House. And now we get... Very belatedly, like, oh, yeah, the FBI actually did go and search the Penn Biden Center after we did the initial uh, discovery. And then, as you said, all of this, you know, background information about why they didn't search it sooner, why the FBI wasn't more heavily involved. And then, surprise, today, they're going to the Rehoboth House. It just seems like the way that this has all gone down, it just doesn't make sense to me. Unless you're getting special treatment, and this is my concern, is that can you think of anybody else who, having acknowledged publicly or at least acknowledged to the National Archives uh, and the Department of Justice, yes, uh, we have found classified documents, we have mishandled classified documents, the DOJ would just turn around and say, oh, yeah, okay, well, we'll leave it up to you to go see if there's any more. I mean, come on. That's not how DOJ operates with anybody else who has been found to have mishandled classified information. And now we're getting another example of special treatment. There's a new story out in the Washington Examiner uh, coming out of Mr. Comer, who runs 
runs the House Oversight uh, Committee now, and he said that he met with a top lawyer for the National Archives, and that according to him, this lawyer said that they had a number of press releases that they were going to put out about the Biden documents and statements, but they, they were told that they could not. And when they asked them who told you they could not, they said, we can't tell you. But oh. as Comer pointed out, huh. uh, there's only only two people who could have given those orders, either the Department of Justice or the White House itself. Yep. And you wonder why that might be the case. It's not hard to speculate. And, of course, we know that the initial discoveries based on their timetable were days before a big national election. And to have some sort of gag order, no, don't tell, don't tell the public, don't inform the public, let's wait and then put out our own drip, 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 which sort of blows up in their face. At least it'll be after the election. Uh, that's what it looks like. It smells terrible. Uh, and we'll see. That seems like a very interesting thread to pull on. Who was who was ordering the cover-up at the National Archives? That's the next question. Kim Strassel, I want to turn to the Durham investigation, which, just to remind people, former Attorney General Bill Barr called up John Durham, longtime prosecutor and U.S. attorney, good bipartisan reputation, and said this whole Russia collusion thing, that investigation started for strange reasons. The whole thing kind of unraveled with the Mueller investigation. The collusion charge uh, was not true. What led to this giant national blowup of the Russia investigation into Trump? We need to investigate how that investigation actually got started. And Durham has been doing that work ever since. He's gotten some indictments, but not convictions from some some low-level stuff. Uh, We're expecting to get a report from Durham at some point. Then we get a New York Times story a few days days ago, I should say, how Barr's quest to find flaws in the Russia inquiry unraveled. And I've seen a New York Times op-ed being shared a lot, basically saying that The new revelations prove that Bill Barr is a hack and the whole thing was a setup. And really, this was more bad stuff for Trump and they're trying to deceive us. What's going on here, Kim? It's hard for me. I don't the people who are and always have been deranged with Bill Barr. I don't trust them. I don't trust the people who were all in on the Russia collusion stuff to now preemptively declare that, you know, surprise, Barr and Trump are the bad guy after all. I'm highly, highly skeptical What's the truth here? What do we know? So, Guy, I I think you are incredibly kind to call this a news story. Uh, I call it a work of fiction. Uh, It's really remarkable that the New York Times would do this, but not surprising in the end. Look, they have a vested interest, as does everyone in the media, who fell hook, line, and sinker for this Russia collusion hoax and regurgitated it in their news pages for years to now try to suggest that there's no there there when we finally have a prosecutor who's come along to look at the origins of it, uh, the, the mishandling of it by the FBI that, the that, by the way, these press people were taking dictation from throughout all of this. Um, and so they've rewritten history here. Uh, they've suggested we didn't learn anything from this probe. By the way, we wouldn't know half of the stuff we now know about the malfeasance within the FBI and the Clinton campaign and its trickery in terms of its con on the nation in 2016. It's because of this Durham probe we know about who 
Igor Danchenko is and that he was the source of this dossier. We, we know that an, another entire operation set up between a lawyer for the DNC um, and the FBI general counsel that led to a whole separate investigation. Um, there's really a lot of, of bad doings here. And the New York Times doesn't want to acknowledge that because it would call into question its own work. Um, and also they've been gunning for Bill Barr since the day he got into office. Uh, Bill Barr did a remarkable job putting some people in place uh, to both try to search out the real truth here, but also to try to depoliticize the Department of Justice. Um, and what we were just talking about now, we're right back to that politicization. Uh, it's a real pity Bill Barr isn't there still. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like they've always hated Barr. Ironically, Trump hates him now, too, for different reasons. But they're trying to say, oh, look, he's the Trump hack that we always thought that he was. And he's the bad guy and he was covering stuff up. I'm sort of loosely trying to explain my understanding of this, that he was covering up that Durham was actually so alarmed by stuff he found out about Trump that he was investigating Trump and they didn't want us to know that. I mean, look, if that all ends up being in the report from John Durham, then, you know, it'll be out there for the country to read. I just feel like this smacks of preemptive, delegitimization of whatever we're going to find out, whatever the final report from Durham is going to say. They want to delegitimize it and say it's politicized and Bill Barr's manipulated the whole thing. And if there is some damning or devastating or problematic stuff in there for the media, for the DOJ, for the FBI, you know, all of those groups, then pay no attention because the people doing the investigation of the investigation are corrupt and toadies and all of that. And now I've actually seen, Kim, some leftists calling for an investigation into the investigation, into the investigation. So they want now Durham investigated for his investigation into the Russia investigation. And it just, at some point, just seems completely preposterous and silly. And maybe that's the point of this, to just sort of muddy the waters so much that people have no idea what's actually happening. Yeah, it's also just incredibly intellectually dishonest, too, Guy, and I think that's what really bugs me. So, you know, you just mentioned that a whole part of this piece that they wrote is that, well, Durham uh, looked at some of these allegations and it took him into Trump territory, but they never told anybody about it. Um, and they're going to use that. By the way, this was very deliberately put into this story so that at some point, if Durham puts out a report and it doesn't include those allegations, they'll say, see, cover up. That fundamentally... Uh, misses the point of how special prosecutors work. And by the way, the New York Times reporters know that. When you are a special prosecutor, you get all kinds of leads that come into you, and you are obligated yep. to look at them. No, it but definitely, to your point, I think this really feels like preemptively working the refs and signaling, pay no attention to Durham. It's all dirty. We'll see where it goes, and we'll talk to Kim Strassel about it every step of the way on The Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, I saw this clip, I think yesterday, didn't get around to it on the show yesterday, but I want to address it. It was President Biden on his way to Marine One, just looking at the footage, it seems like he is on the South Lawn at the White House, and there's a lot of noise because the helicopter's there. He took a couple questions along the rope line of journalists. And the sound quality is just awful. I'll let you listen to it, then I'll just translate because it's very hard 
to actually hear the words being said. Here's cut 18. Okay. So a reporter asks Biden about Catholic bishops who are demanding that federal tax dollars not go to fund abortions. And Biden responds, no, they are not all doing that, nor is the Pope doing that. I just want to remind you, Joe Biden, who talks a lot about being a Catholic, just like Nancy Pelosi does, for a lot of his career was a moderate on abortion, certainly as far as Democrats go. In fact, decades ago, he supported the overturning of Roe versus Wade and sending the issue back to the states, which is what, of course, finally happened. Now he's very angry about it because his positions have evolved for political reasons. But he actually voted in favor of overturning Roe earlier in his career. And then for much of his Senate career, he was a defender of the Hyde Amendment, the Hyde Rule, which was taxpayer dollars, federal dollars, would not flow to fund abortions. That was his position. Sort of the safe, legal, and rare mindset. You know, not limitless abortion on demand for any reason. He was in favor of some restrictions. That is how a lot of Democrats used to be. Some of them still are out there in the country. Some of them still are in the states. But in Washington, D.C., you can count on one hand how many Democrats support any restrictions on abortion at all, all the way up through birth, including taxpayer funding of abortions. They're almost all for it now. They have gone radical left on this issue, which is really a shame. I wish it weren't such a partisan issue. Because if you look at the public polling, there's actually more crossover of pro-choice Republicans and pro-life Democrats than exists in D.C., right, in Congress and in the corridors of power. But this is the way the issue has polarized in our politics. And because of what they've done, how far they've gone on the Democratic side, it's one of the reasons why I, even when I'm most frustrated and angry with the Republicans, can't actually vote for Democrats. Way out there in sort of a stomach-turning way, as far as I'm concerned. And just the progression, or really the regression, the devolution of Joe Biden on this issue, for obviously transparently political reasons, completely abandoning long-held principles that he used to describe as principles to embrace the most radical pro-abortion agenda, not even pro-choice anymore, Because that is what the donor and activist class and the media class require of someone to get to the point of being president. That is the cost of entry now for national Democrats. And Joe Biden was willing to do that. I think it's a moral shame, an ethical shame, a scientific shame. I wish he hadn't done it. I think it's a really bad look for him. I'm also not really in the business of saying this person is a bad Christian or a bad Catholic or a bad, you know, that it's, I think that's really judgmental and I don't like to go there. Right? He who is blameless, throw the first stone, all of that. I do think it is next level brazen, however, 
for this man who leans heavily on the whole Catholic faith thing when it suits him to not only have completely abandoned the church's teaching on this issue, but now he's just lying about what that teaching actually is. Claiming that the Pope is not against public funding of abortions? That's what he said in that soundbite. I mean, this Pope might be more progressive in some ways than some of his predecessors, but he has been crystal clear, Pope Francis, on the issue of abortion and life. Quote after quote after quote. Not subtle. And for Biden to sort of suggest that some Catholic bishops and the Pope aren't opposed to taxpayer funding of abortion, that's just not true. That's a lie about church doctrine to basically justify his complete disregard for the actual doctrine that he's now deeply distorting. I'm not going to call him a name for doing that. I'm just going to point out that he is doing that. And I think that is a very questionable choice. Let's put it that way. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up next. Jessica Tarloff will be here. We've got Woke Tales. We've got Katie Pavlitz later. So much to get to. It is the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here with us. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free on demand every day when the show is over, just past 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We air between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcast really growing like gangbusters. We had our biggest month by far ever in January. It wasn't even close, so thank you. Very, very thankful. You can follow us on social media, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me on those same Platforms, if you'd like, personally, at Guy P. Benson. So that's pretty easy. Just two for one. At Guy Benson Show, at Guy P. Benson, Twitter and Instagram. With us now, Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, head of research at Bustle, chief romance correspondent, chief baby correspondent at The Guy Benson Show. And what was the exact phrase, Jesse? I think you were going to be chief jittery presentation correspondent here at the program as well, based on a direct insult from Donald Trump, having, I guess, watched The Five a few times? Uh, Yeah, I think, yeah, Chief Chittery correspondent. And some of your listeners may also agree, so I'm going to try to be my my non-jittery best self for the next 13 minutes or whatever we have. (laughs) Well, and because here's the thing. He was, I guess, on, I believe, Truth Social. He'd been watching The Five, and he decided that he wanted to critique you. Uh, so he said that you were always wrong on the facts, and I would say only sometimes wrong, in my opinion, often, um, but usually rooted in disagreement. And then he was going after, I don't quite understand the jittery presentation point, but he did take a shot at your voice, and you kind of responded, because I texted you about it, you kind of responded, tough but fair. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I think how you responded, which was like almost somehow one degree better than what my own husband said. You said it's an acquired taste. And Brian, my husband, paused when I said, is it really bad? And I, I know that pauses always feel worse for the person who's like waiting for you to say, I what are you love you say? back or whatever. Yeah. And then he goes, it doesn't really bother me. I was like, are you effing kidding me? Like... I mean, the thing is you're self-aware about it. Like, look, some people are born with a certain voice. Some people are born with a different voice. You can take lessons or whatever to try to change it a little bit, but generally just it is what it is. And you're like, look, I have a voice that I can't change. And it, fair enough, right? Like, that's just the reality. And it can be an acquired taste. Like, I don't really notice it as much anymore. But I'm sure you sometimes hear from viewers, especially when they disagree with you. They're like, oh, we're going to make a point about her voice. I mean, fine. But I would rather have the discussion about what you're saying with said voice and I was, I believe you said, very diplomatic in my response on that point. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, no, it was it was appreciated as it was a, a day of a wide range of commentary and feedback. I, I, I like that <laughs> yours was just squarely in the middle. Um, <laughs> I try. Uh, yeah. The voice thing is tough, though. I actually, I went to voice lessons early on when I started doing TV. And... Um, it wasn't really changing anything because it's not a, a lot of times it's about breathing patterns, like sit up straight. I have very good posture. You Um, do have good posture. Except the thing is like, now I'm thinking back, Elizabeth Holmes did that very weird thing where she dropped her voice and put on that fake voice to sound more authoritative when she was in the process of like running that giant multi-billion dollar scam or whatever it was. With you know the pill company, the blood company, that was a big famous scandal. Margaret Thatcher famously really worked on her voice and her presentation and sort of bringing it down an octave because she wanted to sound, you know, more powerful. I guess there seem to be some tricks that some people can pull off, but I guess what the tricks weren't working in your case. Also, I stopped doing it. I'm sure if I was really committed and if I ever tried to defraud people or become prime minister, <laughs> I guess it would be president, then I may reconsider. Uh-huh. Um, but for now, I shall continue peddling my democratic talking points with millennial vocal fry or whatever this is called. Um, there we go. This is not a world famous scam defrauding many investors and famous people. This is not becoming the leader or a leader of the free world. This is just the Guy Benson show in the five, right? The stakes are a bit lower, still very important, I would argue. Many people are saying just a little bit lower. I did, speaking of the five, I just have to bring this up as well. I saw the portrait that Dana Perino presented you of your daughter, Cleo, which makes sense because you're chief baby correspondent here. Absolutely adorable. What's the backstory there? So Dana's sister, Angie, is a great artist, and she made the portrait of Cleo for me. And I knew that she was doing something because Dana had kind of been collecting, like, great pictures of Cleo 
and you know said oh Angie Angie wants them so I was like oh what is this like maybe it's like a calendar um because uh Dana has made uh Jasper calendars her yes. dog and, and a Percy calendar now her uh her new Vichla and so I thought maybe that and then it arrived yesterday and Dana gave it to me before the show and I was just so touched it's gorgeous and like I said on air it's totally captures Cleo's essence like she's a vibe and you can feel it through the painting um and it was just so generous and touching and wonderful and Angie is a delight I got to um meet her um for Dana's 50th birthday um last spring and I just thoroughly enjoyed her and she's She's everything a Perino would be, and um, I absolutely <laughs> love it, and it was really cute. Cleo, you know, she recognizes herself in the mirror, and she gets it. Like, if you put the phone on selfie mode, she likes FaceTime because she can see herself, and she stared at the painting, you know, furrowed brow, and then she figured it out that it was her, and she was really happy. It was so sweet. Um, and it's, so, yeah, it is really Angie. good because I have met Cleo because – I came over and saw your place and had a nice time when we were in New York a couple months ago, I think, at this point, and got to really experience Cleo for not an extended period of time, but, you know, an hour or two. And this, and now I'm looking at the painting because you pose with Dana, holding the painting after the show, and it's really good, and it definitely captures the Cleo energy there. What a lovely gesture. What a just thoughtful, kind thing. Like, the Perinos are exactly what you think they are, right? Yep. Which is fantastic because so many times people are not. Um, mm-hmm. And this is – it's a genuine article. Um, so it's, it's wonderful. Completely agree. We've now – talked about many things other than politics here as we started the second hour of the Guy Benson show. I want to ask you, just as a New Yorker, there's this story I saw in the Wall Street Journal that your governor, Kathy Hochul, is going to seek a new payroll tax increase in order to try to build revenue, also pull revenue out of some new casinos to fund the mass transit system in New York City because she's been concerned about declining ridership and sort of the thing has been spiraling. That's something we know about here in Washington, D.C., for sure, where, frankly, they don't actually enforce the law down in the metro in terms of not paying the toll every time. People are just, you know, jumping the turnstiles repeatedly. I know that's a problem in New York. There are safety concerns down in the subway in New York. I had just seen Governor Hochul lamenting recently how many people had left the state saying that it's important to win people back to New York after months prior to that, she was saying, if you're a conservative, basically get out of here. We don't want you go to Florida. Now she might be sort of reconsidering that posture. But I wonder in your mind, does it make sense to try to lure people back to New York by raising taxes in New York again? No. Uh, I mean, it's a kind of a double-edged sword with this one because what she is trying to do to improve the quality of mass transit is something that people do really care about. And mm-hmm. I've talked about this a bunch, that I grew up here. I was on the subway all the time with my mom as a kid, and it was great. And now I won't bring Cleo down there. There's no way, no how. Um, you don't know what you're going to run into. Um, it's just 
it doesn't feel particularly safe or sanitary, frankly. Mm-hmm. So it's a worthy goal. But yes, obviously the headline of, oh, hey, now we got a new tax for you is not something that's going to make a compelling argument to people who have left. And I should add as well that obviously a lot of conservatives left, but some liberals left as well. And that was really due to obviously taxes are a thing and that matters to people no matter your politics. Obviously liberals have a higher threshold for what we're willing to pay or think that we have a duty to pay um, to support society. But people left because schools were closed. And they wanted to make sure that their kids were in classrooms. And that's how you got a lot of people who don't necessarily align with Ron DeSantis' politics, for instance, um, or Greg Abbott's in Texas. You know, you go to a city like Austin, um, and the schools are going to be open. And until that gets addressed, I I think that she's going to have a big problem. The decline in the public school system, exodus of, you know, decent teachers, it's a problem. I mean, the numbers are staggering, um, you know, in the millions. Um, and also when you demonize the rich, right, when you demonize successful people and you blame them for problems and you say we're going to keep raising their taxes because they can afford it, you chase them away and then you have a problem with your tax base. Then you can't do the big government spending things that you want to on other things without raising taxes on other people. And it becomes kind of like a vicious cycle where the reverse of virtuous cycle is happening in some of the other states that you just mentioned, I think it's directly related to policy. You at least partially agree, it sounds like. So let's let's just stop at the point of partial agreement, because that's about as good as it's going to get here between Guy Benson and Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five. Always appreciate it, Jesse. Love the new painting. Fantastic. And again, I have acquired the taste for your voice, which is why we love having you on this show. Thank you for always being generous with your time. <laughs> Uh, Thank you for having me. We'll step aside. We'll come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Here's a couple big updates on a story that we've been following. The College Board and its proposed AP curriculum for African-American studies, which was rejected in its initial form by the state of Florida, which then triggered a big, angry backlash on the left, people, of course, screaming racism and all of that. They're erasing black history. We've gone through all of the lies. Of course, black history is required teaching in Florida schools. The concern was unit four out of four in this proposed coursework, which was just rife with heavily political, even radical ideology, or at least a wide-open door to get into that stuff. As we explained here, I wrote about it at townhall.com. I obtained a copy of the curriculum before it became more widely available. We were on this early. And Andrew Sullivan, who's an interesting writer, sometimes conservative, sometimes more unpredictable, he's been noting how deliberately misleading a lot of the coverage of this issue has been, where they leave out very important context That is favorable to the decision that the DeSantis administration made in Florida because they are part of a machine, a propaganda machine, these journalists, to try to mislead people and try to make DeSantis look bad. It's it's really not that subtle. Well, Fox News had a very interesting story. Listen to this headline. 
Florida Democrat agrees with DeSantis on AP African-American history course. Quote, I think it's trash. Here's the story. Leon County Commissioner Bill Proctor, a black Democrat, agreed with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Republican last week, that a proposed AP African-American history course that was rejected by the state's Department of Education constitutes propaganda rather than a legitimate educational curriculum. DeSantis blocked the course on grounds that it violated the Sunshine State's Stop Woke Act that was passed last year. Quote, I think it's trash, Proctor said about the curriculum. There is grave concern about the tone and tenor of leadership's voice from the highest spaces in our state being hostile to teaching of African-American history, he noted. Well, frankly, I'm against the College Board's curriculum. I think it's trash. It's not African-American history. It is ideology, Proctor continued. I've taught African-American history. I've structured syllabi for African-American history. I am African-American history, this man said. So he looked at the same part of this curriculum that I did and that the Department of Education did in Florida and that Ron DeSantis did in Florida and reached the same conclusion. This is an African-American Democrat who has taught African-American history in the past, and he called this element of the curriculum trash, siding with DeSantis, someone who has been a DeSantis critic. This is not one of these Democrats who's a big ally of DeSantis, because there are some of those down there, given his popularity. I think that is very intriguing and really puts another hole, like punctures the narrative that so many people on the left have been going with. So I applaud this guy for actually speaking out, speaking his mind. I know it's probably not necessarily easy to be a black Democrat in that state and basically back DeSantis on something like this, but obviously he feels strongly about it. So he said it, and now here's an even bigger update. I see some lefties melting down on social media because they're framing it this way, that the college board has caved to DeSantis. We told you that they were going to roll out an updated version of the curriculum after Florida said no. Here's the New York Times write-up. After heavy criticism from Governor Ron DeSantis, the College Board released on Wednesday an official curriculum for its new advanced placement course in African-American studies, stripped of much of the subject matter that had angered the governor and other conservatives. The College Board purged the names of many black writers and scholars associated with critical race theory, the queer experience, and black feminism. It ushered out some politically fraught topics like Black Lives Matter from the formal curriculum. It also added something new, black conservatism, now offered as an idea for a research project. So they have changed the proposed curriculum in Florida, really gutting some of the most objectionable stuff from that one unit, Unit 4, There had been no balance, like all left-wing, even some Marxist stuff on one side. Now they've injected the possibility of some conservative thought, black conservative thought in there. This is a big win, not just for DeSantis politically in this cultural battle, which the left almost always starts, by the way. Then conservatives get accused of waging culture wars just for noticing or objecting. So it's a win for DeSantis, also a win for students in Florida who now get to take a course that I think is worthwhile if it gets approved that is much less political, ideological, radical. On a very important subject, I'd call that a win-win, and the fact that a lot of people on the left are having conniption fits over this is just gravy. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this break.
talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, halfway through the week, halfway through the show. Thank you for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast free every day. Wanted to have a little bit of fun in this segment with a handful of stories that fit a similar theme, which is leftists and progressives demanding rules be imposed on other people but not really wanting to abide by those rules when it affects them in a way that they don't like. Rules for thee, not for me, not in my backyard, but in your backyard type situation. We'll start with the National Basketball League. Steph Curry and his wife, Aisha, have sent a letter opposing a new multifamily development near their $30 million house in California, which must be nice. He's one of the most talented basketball players in the world. Of course, he is extremely well compensated and famous. He should be. But what I don't love about Mr. and Mrs. Curry is how they delve into, and we see this from LeBron and others as well, social justice, quote-unquote, issues, political controversies. If memory serves, this duo was at the DNC or spoke on behalf of the DNC in 2020. They are highly woke, and they want everyone to know that. Well, except when it comes to China. Of course, obviously. All right, a little genocide here, a little crushing of democracy there. Let's not really talk about that among friends. There's so much money to be made. So just the glaring hypocrisy vis-a-vis the Chinese Communist Party aside, here's another example of that from Steph Curry. Reading from the New York Post, famed NBA marksman Stephen Curry appears more comfortable with three-point daggers than three-story developments. Along with his influencer wife, Aisha, Curry has now objected to the establishment of multifamily housing on a property adjacent to his sprawling California mansion, according to reports. Right, often we have a housing problem, especially in California, and liberals and progressives say, oh yes, this is very serious, we need to make more affordable housing available to people, this is very important, it's about justice. This can cut down on the unhoused, right? They have all these talking points. Except, all right, here's an opportunity to have some relatively affordable multifamily zoned housing right near where Stephen Curry lives. And wouldn't you know it, he's just not really too excited about that. And he's weighing in on it as well within the community. The story says, in an email, the couple told officials in Atherton, one of the nation's most exclusive enclaves, that the three-story townhouses would encroach on their privacy. Routinely vocal on matters of social justice, uh the Bay Area power couple indicated that joining the well-heeled chorus of objection made them uneasy. Isn't this good? They acknowledge that they're uncomfortable. They've got some progressive guilt about it, but that's not going to stop them from saying what they want to say. Quote, we hesitate to add to the not-in-our-backyard, literally, rhetoric. But we wanted to send a note before today's meeting, they wrote in mid-January. Safety and privacy for us and our kids continues to be our top priority and one of the biggest reasons we chose to live in Atherton. End quote. Okay, so you might say, fair enough. Right? They spent $30 million on this place. He's one of the biggest superstars in the country. Privacy, security, of course those are going to be concerns for anyone in that position. So it might make sense that they would try to fight against this kind of development. You might too. I might too. 
in that position. The difference is what the progressive sort of woke social justice movement dictates is that people who look out for their own interests and the interests of their own families, when it conflicts with progressive orthodoxy, those people are being selfish, mean, anti-justice, and possibly even racist. Or, like, you know, add on the whole list of calumnies. But I think for a lot of people, standing up for your own interest and your own family's interest is the obvious thing that you ought to do, but that's not the collectivist mindset, at least in theory. Until the theory shows up almost literally on your doorstep and Steph Curry and his wife are like, well, hang on just a second. We, we hesitate. We hesitate. We're uncomfortable to do the NIMBY thing, but we're going to do the NIMBY thing. Not in my backyard. We don't love it, but we're doing it because ultimately our interests trump the interests of other people or whatever they're trying to achieve for these less fortunate people. Just not so close to us. Sorry. I think that is revealing. Similarly, here in Washington, D.C., Washington City Paper reporting about how NBC News' Andrea Mitchell who's one of their reporters and anchors. I think I last saw her in a viral clip scolding one of her own reporters for using the term pro-life on the air. They don't use pro-life. Not on her show, not on her watch. Right, I'm sure it's like in the Andrea Mitchell style guide, the Andrea Mitchell style book. It's anti-choice, anti-woman, or Pro-choice, pro-woman, something like that. I might be exaggerating slightly, but she is one of these media agitators for abortion. Well, she is also not too happy about something going on in her neighborhood. By the way, I think if she moved into a lot of different neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., where the crime has gotten really bad, she would have lots of objections. But like Steph Curry, she's in a very Tony enclave. She and her husband, both famous, both very rich, so they're in this very nice spot. But Andrea Mitchell reportedly is part of a, quote, an increasingly vocal group of neighbors who live along University Terrace. This is in the Palisades area, very nice, northwest. They are fighting to see the roads closed to through traffic, arguing that it's the only way to prevent commuters from zooming down their streets to reach popular nearby thoroughfares like MacArthur Boulevard, or Lowborough Road. They're also arguing against the installation of other traffic calming measures that could avert the need for full road closures, such as sidewalks. (laughs) So they don't want people zooming through their neighborhoods. By the way, we have this issue in our neighborhood all the time. People use our street as a little cut through and a shortcut, and sometimes they go too fast. It did not even occur to me to try to lobby and use my influence or whatever and voice to get the road closed to people. But she's also against adding sidewalks. And I guess they're arguing that the addition of sidewalks would change fundamentally the neighborhood and all this stuff and the historical significance and all of that. It doesn't seem awfully neighborly or friendly to people who may not live directly on that street, but people who are looking to maybe walk safely down the street. 
looking to avoid so much of the congestion? Look, I get it if I were in her shoes and didn't want this to happen and could try to keep things the way they are in a way that's very convenient and acceptable to me. Again, understandable. But does this serve the broader public good, which is what progressivism and collectivism claims to pursue? And she's obviously in that crowd, right? There's there's no question that Andrea Mitchell is a Democrat and a leftist and a progressive like just like that's just not under dispute. She's not terribly subtle about it. Now, here's one more example from the same bucket, a little bit different. There's a woman named Diane Ravitch. I love this. I never heard of her before. She is just perfectly a writer who writes about education and education policy, and she is based in Brooklyn, according to her Twitter bio. And she's got the Ukraine flag and the rainbow in her little Twitter bio. By the way, I'm pro both, but I think it's also kind of a virtue signal thing. So Diane Ravitch had this to say a few days ago on her Twitter feed. Again, this is an education writer in Brooklyn. Quote, The best choice is your local public school. It welcomes everyone. It unifies community. It is the glue of democracy. So Christina Pouchaw, who works for Governor DeSantis, went to this woman's website, found her bio, and mined this very interesting element of her bio that I think foolishly Ms. Ravitch put out there for public view. She says, among other things, I am the mother of two sons. They went to private schools in New York City. So Pushaw asks, why didn't you send your sons to local public school? You didn't want the best for them, so you paid for private school in New York City? Make it make sense. Because remember, Diane says that the best choice is your local public school, welcoming everyone, unifying community, the glue of democracy. And yet she sent her kids to private school, which she says is not the best choice. And you would guess it actually doesn't welcome everyone, by definition, very exclusive. It deunifies community. It loosens the glue of democracy. Why would she make that choice when she so confidently asserts that the best choice is public school? Obviously, not the best choice that she chose to make for herself and her family. Her response to Pusha is amazing. She says, I paid for it. I didn't ask taxpayers to pay for my private choice. Well, taxpayers have to pay for the public schools. They have no choice. (laughs) So, right, that's point number one. Secondly, this doesn't actually refute the premise of the question that she's being challenged with. If she's out there telling all the little people, All the other people that the best choice for them, really for everyone, is your local public school for all these reasons. And then she decides to make a different choice for her kids, which sort of conflicts with the idea. Like, why would you automatically reject the best choice, quote unquote, in your mind? And her answer is because I paid for it. I didn't ask other people to pay for it. This is such a self-own And she doesn't even realize it in her little 
progressive New York City, Brooklyn bubble. Right? She's cloistered in this reality where it feels completely natural for her to just decree from on high to the plebeians that the best choice, of course, is public school for all of these high-minded reasons and all these knuckle-dragging, horrible people who are trying to bring about school choice. They're just trying to ruin the best option. And then when she's called on it, her huge, obvious, glaring, rank hypocrisy, she says, well, I paid for that. Well, what about the people who can't afford to pay for it, Diane? That's the point. Rich people like you have school choice. They can afford to make decisions. And guess what? A lot of them, like you, Diane, make the decision that public school actually is not the best choice for your kids. Presumably she made that for solid reasons, not because she hates welcoming communities, not because she hates unified communities, not because she wants to unglue democracy, but because she understood that perhaps the public schools that they might have gone to would not be better in any way or any major way than the private school she decided to pay the money that she had to send her kids. Other parents who are less fortunate who are not as rich as Diane Ravitch, might make the exact same calculation in their mind, looking at failing or dangerous or, you know, bureaucracy overrun or left-wing public schools, and they might want to send their kids somewhere else knowing that it's not true. Diane's little statement that the best choice is the local public school. They might know that is certainly not the best choice for their kids, but they can't afford anything else. And what Diane wants to do is make sure that those people still can't afford anything else. It's good for people like her. I paid for it. Not okay. Few blocks away for, let's say, the parents of color each working two jobs just to make ends meet. Sorry, kids. Sorry, family. You just have to believe me when I tell you that your local public school is the best choice, even though I rejected that for my own kids. Because I can afford it and you can't. Oh, well. Do you see the disconnect? How could you not? To be so blind as to miss that disconnect and the policy implications of it would have to mean that you're someone like a left-wing education writer living in Brooklyn. The Guy Benson Show returns right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. And it's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. We probably could have considered the last segment an extended part of Woke Tales as well. But this one really hits the mark. Aaron Sabarium at the Washington Free Beacon highlights an op-ed at the Daily Princetonian written by a student at Princeton, an undergrad, who is very, very concerned that Princeton's honor code, its rules against cheating and plagiarism, quote, unfairly target minorities, just like the criminal justice system, this person argues. She says it's therefore racist and should be dismantled in the name of creating a more equitable society. She lays out her argument, basically saying, Princeton's long-standing honor code rules that lay out 
harsh punishments for cheating and plagiarism are not equitable and disproportionately target students of color. Therefore, it's not fair, and they must be dismantled as one of these systems of oppression or whatever. Just like the criminal justice system. Yeah, of course, of course, yes. I just want to think for a moment about how incredibly racist this idea is. Right? This proposition unto itself is extremely racist. It presupposes that students of certain skin colors are both intellectually and morally deficient and therefore rules against clearly morally wrong things when it comes to the world of academia must be loosened or done away with because we have to give an extra leg up to these intellectually and morally deficient people of certain skin color who couldn't possibly do the work properly and who couldn't possibly go about their academic careers in ethically upstanding ways. That is the underlying assumption and thesis of this whole piece. But I'm sure this young woman thinks that she is being very, very progressive as she makes her case. By the way, one of her concentrations at Princeton is in gender and sexuality studies, in case you were curious. Her name is Emily Santos. I only mention her name because I do wonder if she might be related to another certain Santos who might be highly interested in loosening rules against lying, cheating, fabricating, plagiarizing, recently uh, elected to Congress. Any relation there, Emily? Meanwhile, I can think of one other person who might be very invested in the idea of an elite university lowering the consequences for plagiarism. We're changing people's lives. Uh-huh. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Katie Pavlich is here straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on this Wednesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast, free every day, growing thanks to all of you. We just blew out our previous record on downloads last month. Let's keep it rolling. Very appreciative. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow.com. Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow me personally on those platforms at Guy P. Benson. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, our good friends over there. Delightful, delicious, 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where they're sold near you as they expand all over the map. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Well, joining us now is Katie Pavlich, editor at TownHall.com, Fox News contributor, my dear friend and colleague twice over. And Katie, welcome back to the show. Great to be here, Guy. Thank you. I'm, I'm sitting in your beautiful studio. I got to say, your lighting is great. It's very nice. And it's it got the red, white, and blue here. motif. You've got my little, like, 
swag there set up for the cameras when I'm in town. It's a pretty good setup. Really nice. Yeah, and I'm glad good. that you're there. You sound fantastic. I want to start with this. The Republicans down in Florida are going to be introducing a constitutional carry bill on firearms, the Second Amendment issue. And my understanding is what they are pursuing in Florida is already the law in dozens of other states. Mm-hmm. But this is becoming, quote unquote, a controversy, A, because I think basically anything that Ron DeSantis does, people decide to freak out over. B, Democratic leaders are attacking him for it. I saw Gavin Newsom wading into this. And mm-hmm. C, relatedly, because Newsom brought this up, the media and the Democrats were saying, of course, they oppose this just to begin with because it's a gun thing. But they're also saying it's very insensitive because the conversation is happening around the anniversary of that school shooting, that horrible school shooting in Parkland, Florida. I just wonder, just on a policy level, if you can talk about this bill and then maybe some of the noise surrounding it. Yeah. So on, on a policy level, as you mentioned, there are a number of states, 16 in total, who have these constitutional carry laws on the books already. My home state of Arizona is one of them. And the left will argue that this will lead to more violence. Uh, they claim that this leads to more gun deaths or what, you know whatever that means in terms of gun death. Uh, homicide is homicide regardless. But if you look at the data from the CDC about those homicides, these 16 states have a lower rate of, uh, quote, gun violence than the other states who have these carry permit restrictions, specifically more restrictive states like California. Um, so on a, you know, on a policy level, this has been implemented elsewhere. It does not result in more crime. And the bottom line is that uh, legislatures like Florida and Governor Ron DeSantis and the Republicans who want to vote for this piece of legislation look at the situation and say, you know, criminals are already illegally carrying guns. So why are we making it harder for lawfully abiding, lawful abiding Americans to defend themselves by having to go through the government process to simply exercise their right to carry. Uh, on a cultural level, you know, people who carry firearms lawfully are the most voluntarily trained, uh, competent people that we have in this country. Concealed carry permit holders are uh, not rule breakers. They're not uh, breaking the laws. Uh, They're not the ones committing these crimes. Uh, And those are going to be the same people who would carry constitutionally under uh, these laws. And so, you know, from a policy perspective, um, the noise around this increasing violence is just not true. And a lot of these studies that the left is using to say that it will, they count self-defense cases with the firearm as gun violence. So if I'm attacked by someone who's trying to rape me or do me harm, and I shoot them and they end up dying as a result of their behavior, they count that as a homicide or as a gun violence uh, situation in their study. So that's how they claim um, this happens. So if there is more self-defense that results in criminals getting hurt or and you know dying as a result, they count that as gun violence, which is absurd. You know, I also think it's interesting, especially on the hard left. You have people who will argue absolutely that people should not have the ability to defend themselves this way. Right. And then you would say, okay, well, what happens if you're in trouble? And the answer can't be call the police because those same people believe that the the police are systemically racist and violent as well and must be abolished or defunded. It just really seems like they have no actual plan for public safety at all, aside from we're against the cops and we're against people exercising their constitutional rights to defend themselves. It just doesn't really work. Yeah, I want to say something, too, about the Parkland situation, because Gavin Newsom, of course, as you mentioned, um, weighed in. 
And um, Ryan Petty, who is the father of a young lady named Elena, uh, was killed in the Parkland shooting. He doesn't get as much attention as, as other people do because he is against gun control. And he retweeted Gavin Newsom's tweet and said, hey, Gavin, my daughter Elena was killed at Parkland and I support permitless carry in Florida. If my daughter were alive, she'd be carrying because she'd be defenseless in a gun free zone. Sit this one out. Um, so there's a lot of voices on the other side of this um, who aren't trying to use the Parkland situation as an apples to apples to comparison when it comes to this issue. Um, and people like Gavin Newsom, for, who from afar are using this issue for his own 2024 political aspirations, yep. potentially against Ron DeSantis, uh, it's pretty despicable. Um, and then just one more, one more point on the, the permitless carry, constitutional carry provision. You know, people will say, well, don't you believe that we should have training? Don't you believe we should have mandatory uh, permitting uh, because then people have to go through a system? I understand maybe some of the arguments for the concealed carry process uh, and the people who voluntarily submit themselves to that process, to the fingerprinting, uh, for the most part, have been happy to do it. And they do it (laughs) not to violate the law, but to be in the system so that the government knows they are the good guys. Um, But there was a case in New Jersey in 2015 of a woman named Carolyn Bone. And she had a former ex-husband or an ex-husband who was a serial domestic abuser, was in prison threatened to kill her multiple times, was getting out of prison. She went to the New Jersey Concealed Carry Permit Office, begged for a gun. Um, They refused to give it to her. And while waiting, uh, she was supposed to get her permit in two weeks after waiting for months on end. Her ex-husband got out of prison, and guess what happened? He killed her. Hmm. So why is it that vulnerable people should be subjected to a bureaucratic system when they're in these positions and maybe can't afford to go through a concealed carry process that is very expensive. And we've seen that implemented in places like Washington, D.C. and other places where they don't really want people to have the right to concealed carry, um, but they've been forced by the Supreme Court to offer either open carry or concealed carry, and they can't ban both. Yeah, and it's such, to your prior point, a sleazy and gross move for Gavin Newsom to invoke Parkland. And I know some of the Parkland activists are doing the same thing. Just for his own political aspirations and ambitions, obviously the man is desperate to be president. He's constantly trying to pick a fight with Florida and Ron DeSantis, a fight, by the way, that I am very comfortable having. Like, if that's the yeah. argument we're going to have as a country, like, bring it on. But yes, I agree. He he raises this as if, like, it is so unseemly to introduce a bill in the general vicinity of the anniversary of some, you know, major horrible incident. And I just don't understand the logic there. It's not like they're introducing this deliberately on the anniversary just to stick it in someone's eye. Like, we're getting close to the legislative session. This is how the process is playing out. This is not being done deliberately to be insensitive. And what we see on the left all the time is symbolic dates and saying we have to rush into gun control. And, right. you know, now is the immediate time. Of course should we, we should be talking about this. The time for politics is right now in the aftermath of a big tragedy. But in this case, they're objecting because it's like somewhere in the calendar vicinity of something that happened that was obviously one of the worst things we've seen on this front ever, like years ago. I just feel like it's an exploitation and not a genuine concern. They would be just as angry and opposed if they waited three months to do this. It's not really about the timing. No, it's not about the timing at all. And like most things on the left, they can't distinguish between two separate things and how they are different. Um, Parkland has absolutely nothing to do with constitutional concealed carry, Mm -hmm. uh, nothing at all. 
and yet they try to conflate uh, the two because they really enjoy painting all law-abiding gun owners or people in America who just simply have a Second Amendment right uh, to to keep and bear arms as criminals. They, that's how they view people who exercise their Second Amendment rights, even if they do follow uh, the law and all of the hoops that they force them to jump through. And so, you know, to them, you're not allowed to have any kind of freedom when it comes to um, the Second Amendment, regardless of the date. And they're happy to use the actions of criminals uh, who go into schools in horrific, absolutely awful evil ways um and they're willing to to use that as an example for everyone who had nothing to do with it on a very separate note katie i want to get your reaction to this story that's been making the rounds on social media for good reason have you seen this bernie sanders (laughs) i guess has announced that he's going to give some big speech in washington dc and if you want to hear him rant about capitalism you can pay about a hundred bucks to go see him at the Anthem, which is a concert venue in D.C., a very nice one, actually, in a Tony it part of nice. town. It's, it's yeah. a great venue. I saw Carly Rae Jepsen there. <laughs> uh, I would much rather go cut to the feeling and see Carly Rae than Bernie. Uh, yeah. But, if, look, if, if this is what you want to do and you want to spend your hard-earned cash listening to an old man yell about capitalism, which he does for free all the time, I guess more power to you, except there is a deep irony here, number one. They're using Ticketmaster to sell these tickets, and everyone's all mad at Ticketmaster right now. And Bernie hates big corporations, but they're going to take their cut out of this. And why can't Bernie Sanders just, like, get a permit and go out to the mall and set up some speakers and do this for free since the topic is how bad capitalism is, and yet he's charging for it? I mean, the jokes kind of write themselves here. Well, I saw Bernie Sanders, fellow Vermonter, Grace Potter at the Anthem. It's the last concert I went to before COVID. Um, But in terms of Bernie Sanders, I mean, I guess he has to pay for his fourth house, right? So maybe that's why he needs to to charge people this amount of money. (laughs) I think that that he should, you know, put out some chairs at one of his nice properties and homes and have it there for free. Uh, And if people want to give donations, he can donate it to the People's Republic of China or something like that. I mean, it's it's just absolutely absurd. These people tear down the country every single day. They tear down the very capitalist system that has made them rich, that has pulled more people out of poverty around the world than any other economic sister on the fi- system on the face of the earth. And yet uh, he wants to rip those opportunities away from everybody else so they have to live under socialism, communism, where they can't succeed in the same ways that he has. It really is well, except- it's hypocritical. It's funny, but it's also really disgusting. Well, and it's also just like very much on brand for socialism oh, yeah. and communism. It's the biggest fraud. Where the right. elites, the, exactly. the elites always are very yep. comfortable and rich in those societies, and they just impose their views on everyone else. So, again, this sort of makes sense, just not the way I think he would probably want it to be perceived. I would just love to know Such a fraud. sort of the process of how this came to be, where he's like, you know what, I want to do yet another anti-capitalism speech. Let's charge people to come see it at this bougie venue, charge them 100 bucks, and let's partner with a big corporation and Monopoly <laughs> Ticketmaster <laughs> to do it. It's like an amazing cascade of decisions that were made, and I would definitely read like a 5,000-word backstory of how they oh, made yeah. it on these choices. Yeah, well, and I'm sure he'll just blame it on someone else. Like, he always blames everything else on every, you know, all these decisions. And he'll, he'll ultimately just say, well, it's for the good of the cause. So we're allowed to engage mm-hmm. in horrific 
capitalism, including Ticketmaster, which just screwed a bunch of people out of Taylor Swift tickets, the ultimate swin, the ultimate sin, um, in order to continue promoting uh, this socialist utopia that has not made him rich but has brought lots of people into poverty all around the world. Um, and well, I wonder if he'll to, bring, to like, special guests it. on stage, you know, for, like, a value well, Guevara, add for Che, che Guevara is dead, way. so he can't bring him, unfortunately. The squad. Him. Have the squad. He, they he could be, like, his squad. backup dancers. Yeah. Yeah, they could be his backup <laughs> dancers uh, as, as part of this performance, as long as they get a cut, of course, because they need a cut. I mean, AOC might be thinking about buying another Tesla. I don't know. So yeah. there's a lot of but ways she got rid of that, directions this Elon Musk. Go. You know, she got rid of the Tesla. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very curious it's, what other bougie electric vehicle she has hopped into so she can illegally park in her fancy Navy Yard apartment complex right yeah. next to the Whole Foods. A lot of deep thinking from her, her squad members, never a dull moment in D.C. Uh, you can go to Ticketmaster.com for those tickets if you want them. We should maybe go. Do a little reporting. That's actually not the worst. I, I just don't want to give him my money. Right, well, I should, you know I should apply it's for, for the a cause, waiver. guy. A different cause. For the cause of capitalism, we should go. I'll think about it. Send me the details. <laughs> Katie Pavlich, editor of townhall.com, Fox News contributor. Katie, always appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Great to see you. Or hear you, guy. Talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll come right back. It is the happy hour. A soundbite that you have to hear. Yes, our vice president has done it again. This one is an all-timer. That's next. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We continue here on the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Well, I teased it right before the break. (laughs) Vice President Kamala Harris was at one of her public events. This was yesterday. And she was talking about astronauts, space travel, and she was addressing a group of preschoolers and kindergartners when she explained a rocket launch. Just listen. May 30th, 2020. Bob and Doug returned to the Kennedy Space Center. They suited up, they waved to their families, and they rode an elevator up nearly 20 stories. They strapped in to their seats and waited as the tanks beneath them filled with tens of thousands of gallons of fuel. And then they launched. Yeah, they did. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that she spoke to an audience of preschoolers and kindergartners? I, I misspoke. She was addressing a Congressional Space Medal of Honor ceremony to honor former astronauts. This was an audience of grown adults in the space community. And she's describing the build-up to launch like no one has any idea what she's talking about. So she has to speak very slowly and simply for them. And then they launched. Yeah, they did. (laughs) Now that you know what the audience was, because I just assumed I heard the clip. I didn't know the context. I truly, truly believed that she was talking to young children. Not to adults, let alone expert adults and actual astronauts at a Medal of Honor ceremony. Listen to it again, knowing what you know. It gets even cringier, and it's even worse, by the way, when you watch it on video. May 30th, 2020. Bob and Doug returned to the Kennedy Space Center. 
They suited up, they waved to their families, and they rode an elevator up nearly 20 stories. They strapped in to their seats and waited as the tanks beneath them filled with tens of thousands of gallons of fuel. And then they launched. Yeah, they did. <laughs> oh, just absolute cringe. And to refer to another one of the vice president's passions, if you made a Venn diagram of people who were at this speech and thought it was good, it's just one circle. It's her. Well said as usual, Madam Vice President. One heartbeat away. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour back after this. We did it, Joe. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier today on the Guy Benson Show, we had a really good conversation with Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal. Pretty wide-ranging, a little bit in the weeds, but in an important way. Here's part of that discussion with Kim Strassel. I just wonder, first of all, do we actually take them at their word that nothing untoward was found today? Because it seems like they've been hiding the ball a little bit on certain things as it has suited them over months, quite frankly. And this is now the second thing in the last couple of days that we've learned, Kim, where they keep talking about their transparency, how open they've been. And then it's like, oh, well, actually, we just failed to mention a previous FBI search that happened in November. Uh, That happened. Sorry, CBS got to that first. And and now the follow-up in Rehoboth today, it just seems like this has been unfolding in a very sloppy way that almost feels designed to undermine faith in what they're telling us. Yeah, I mean, it's. I would say that it's unfolding in a way that they uh, didn't expect because clearly the reasons they have not been telling us this stuff is because it didn't necessarily play into their perceived or the narrative they wanted to give out, which is that we've been fully cooperative, we've really been calling the shots here, etc. Now we find out that the FBI was far more involved than anybody knew, uh, that searches were taking place. And so, as it is, their lack of transparency is coming back to bite them, as is often the case. But can I just quickly, here's the thing that all of this brings up to me, though, because it's this question that just continues to nag at me, is that the Journal had a story a couple of weeks ago saying that the FBI and DOJ and the Biden team had got together and everyone had decided it would be better if the Biden team conducted the initial search at his house in Rehoboth Beach, Um, because the FBI, according to the story, was concerned that if they jumped in too quickly with searches and search warrants, et cetera, that this could complicate later investigatory efforts. That didn't make any sense to me, and it makes even less sense now because, as you note, it turns out that very quickly after those documents being found at the Penn Biden Center were found, the FBI was there doing a search, which raises the question yet again, why on earth were those lawyers allowed to go do those first searches at the president's home and Rehoboth Beach? Yeah, like the sequence makes no sense. So – The story goes they found – like just stumbled upon while cleaning out this office, and there were lawyers there for some reason. He sent his lawyers to clean out his office. Okay. And they find some top-secret material, marked classified stuff at very high levels. Uh Uh-oh. It's a week before the election. They say that they uh, quickly told the National Archives, handed it over. 
and the National Archives told the DOJ. Then they just sort of skipped ahead to the revelation months later, well after the election, that any of this had happened. And, oh, well, oops, here's some more stuff found in the Wilmington House. And some more stuff found in the Wilmington House. Oh, wait, some more stuff found in the Wilmington House. I guess the DOJ is going to be here after all at the Wilmington House. And now we get, very belatedly, like, oh, yeah, the FBI actually did go and search the Penn Biden Center after we did the initial uh, discovery. And then, as you said, all of this, you know, background information about why they didn't search it sooner, why the FBI wasn't more heavily involved. And then, surprise, today, they're going to the Rehoboth House. It just seems like the way that this has all gone down, it just doesn't make sense to me. Unless you're getting special treatment, and this is my concern, is that can you think of anybody else who, having acknowledged publicly or at least acknowledged to the National Archives uh, and the Department of Justice, yes, uh, we have found classified documents, we have mishandled classified documents, the DOJ would just turn around and say, oh, yeah, okay, well, we'll leave it up to you to go see if there's any more. I mean, come on. That's not how DOJ operates with anybody else who has been found to have mishandled classified information. My full interview with Kimberly Strassel of The Wall Street Journal and the entire show available on demand totally free every day on our podcast that includes today when the show is over guybensonshow.com foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts when we come back the home stretch a big announcement in the sports world plus one of the most amusing stories i've seen in a while about an app gone awry we'll explain that straight ahead for the full interview and more go to guybensonshow.com Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Jetting to the West Coast again. It was just there, but heading off tonight. We'll be doing the show from Los Angeles tomorrow, Southern California, on Friday elsewhere in Southern California. So stay tuned for that. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free. And as I've mentioned a few times, hit a brand new record-shattering mark on the podcast in January. So really grateful for that. Grateful to all of you. Let's keep that momentum going. Before we get to our main topic here on the home stretch, I do just want to play for you Cut 16, an announcement today. Tom Brady, arguably, I would say begrudgingly, the greatest of all time at that position in the NFL, making an announcement that he had previously made. We'll see if this time it sticks. Good morning, guys. Uh, I'll get to the point right away. I'm retiring for good. I know the process uh, was a pretty big deal last time, so when I woke up this morning, I figured I'd just press record and let you guys know first. So I won't be long-winded. You only get one super emotional retirement essay, and I used mine up last year. So uh, really thank you guys so much to every single one of you for supporting me, my family, my friends, my teammates, my competitors, uh, I could go on forever. There's too many. Thank you guys for allowing me to live my absolute dream. I wouldn't change a thing. Love you all. So he's out, right? He had already gone on the retirement tour and all the reaction after last season, and then he just got the itch and couldn't walk away quite yet, so he came back, played another season with the Bucks. They made the playoffs, but were not terribly good, finished below 500, were dispatched easily in the playoffs, and I guess now he's decided, okay, now I'm really done. We'll see. 
because he's such a competitor. A few months from now, might he be still fanatically working out in good shape and thinking, I could give it another try. I don't know. This one feels like maybe it's going to actually hold. Who knows? I know some people are commenting on the fact that he said he wouldn't change a thing, basically no regrets at all. Of course, his unretirement reportedly, seemingly, was a very big factor in the dissolution of his marriage. So, you know, you hope that things can work out. That might be something, if I were in his shoes, that I would be thinking about and maybe regretting or thinking about having done certain things differently. But, look, I don't know what was happening in that house, in that marriage. It's not for me to say. But I think that it'll be fodder for sports fans for a while. Was it the right call for him to come back? Or should he have gone out when he did? Or could he have gone out on top just a few seasons before that? But his legacy, his wins and loss record, his Super Bowl rings against all of his opponents, really, except for the New York Giants in the Super Bowl, I must point out, uh, speaks for itself. I don't think there's really much of an argument against the notion that he is the GOAT. And even if you're not a Brady fan necessarily, rooted against him on the gridiron, you just got to give him that. With that, let's get to what might be one of my favorite stories that I've read in a while. It comes from local news in Michigan. The headline is Michigan boy, age six, spends $1,000 on Grubhub. Quote, doorbell just kept ringing, cars kept coming. The dateline is a town called Chesterfield Township in Michigan. The doorbell just kept ringing and the cars just kept coming. A six-year-old Michigan boy went on a wild $1,000 spree like he was on a game show, using his father's Grubhub account, ordering large amounts of food from numerous area restaurants. The food piled up quickly for Keith Stonehouse of Chesterfield Township in Metro Detroit on Saturday night while he was home alone with his son Mason with his wife Kristen away at the movies with some friends. We're talking five large orders of jumbo shrimp, salads, shawarma, chicken pita sandwiches, chili cheese fries, ice cream, grape leaves, rice, and that's just some of what was delivered by Grubhub. One driver after the next. It was like something out of a Saturday Night Live skit. Stonehouse said, who says he still isn't laughing. I was probably a 9.5 out of 10 anger while it was happening. The next day I was at an 8, and now I'm at about a 3. I don't really find it funny yet, but I can laugh with people a little bit. It's a lot of money, and it came out of nowhere. So how did this happen? The story reports the father says he let his son Mason use his cell phone to play a game for about half an hour before bed. He never thought he would instead click on the Grubhub app and order large amounts of food from one restaurant after another. He's six, so it doesn't kind of sink in. It's not like our 13-year-old did this, he said. This is the father speaking. Trying to explain this to a six-year-old, we told him we took money out of his piggy bank to pay for this bag of food and this one and so on. We could tell he was upset but we don't really know if it has sunk in. That's the frustrating part. So much food had been ordered from so many different places. Chase Bank actually sent a fraud alert declining a $439 order from Happy's Pizza. Ordering 
$439 worth of pizza is a challenge. But this kid did it, and it got declined. However, a $183 order of jumbo shrimp from the same restaurant did go through just fine and arrived at the house. It took a few orders of food for Stonehouse to realize what was going on. Even after he put two and two together, there was nothing he could do to stop the orders from coming. He said he put his kid to bed, saw a car pull up, the doorbell rings, and the driver dropped a big bag of stuff right at the door. He said that his wife owns a slice of heaven cakes. It's a bakery, big wedding weekend. So he just assumed it was someone dropping off decorative stuff that they had borrowed from his wife. But when it was Leo's Coney Island, I was like, what the heck? (laughs) The doorbell rang again and again, and it kept happening car after car. And at some point, when he was getting these messages from his phone, like, your food is ready, your food is on its way, your food is being delivered, he then panicked, went over to his bank account and saw that it was getting drained. And there's a few photos of just the piles of food that arrived. So this kid was given a phone to entertain him for 30 minutes before bedtime. And what, six years old is probably first grade. This kid either stumbled upon or deliberately went to the Grubhub app and just went to town. And by the way, you can't sort of easily or quickly order a bunch of food this way. Right, if you've ever ordered food online through an app like this, it is relatively seamless, but you have to select things and add them to the cart and then select the credit card that you're going to use and make sure that the delivery address is correct. And I mean, these were elaborate orders, right? He tried to order almost 500 bucks worth of pizza alone. That charge was declined. This, this thing would have been way bigger if Chase Bank hadn't declined that one. It's just very easy and convenient, I guess, when adults want to do it, but then it's easy and convenient for kids who are very used to technology, and I guess if you're six, you don't fully understand the value of money. It's just sort of this magical thing where you hit a button and you see a dollar amount, and mom and dad have money, and I'm hungry or whatever. You just do it. I think I would have intuitively known even before I was six years old, like, this is not something that I should do, that I could get in really big trouble. And I guess as the punishment, they told him they took money out of his piggy bank, and he was really upset about that. But maybe it's just, like, not really clicking that he did something wrong. Now, I've said for a while that if I had a young kid, I'm not sure I would get that kid a cell phone anytime soon. I think it's like younger and younger kids are getting these cell phones. This would at least be part of the counter argument. Because if you hand your own device to a kid just for a short period of time, and now they're clicking on apps and ordering stuff, when you think they're just doing like, I don't know what kids that age play, Candy Crush, I have no idea. (laughs) That's a problem. So I have to think about this. Now, Christine, you're a parent. Your daughter is a few years older than this, would you have bought the ignorance excuse if Megan had done this at six? Well, let's just be honest. Megan is more mature than I am. So Bobby would probably first look at me to see what I did wrong. (laughs) I probably don't know how to use the app. But no, yeah, I mean, at six years. You would order all the food. It would just get delivered to a Target in California. Well done. That's a good callback.
But um, go ahead, please. No, I, I wouldn't worry about this with Megan. But at six years old, I mean, I'm sorry. It's really on the parent. I don't think that yeah. you could hold a six-year-old responsible. Now, at Megan's age now, ooh, that would be – she would be in major punishment mode. There would be some grounding going on. The only thing is, like, <laughs> this is, like, so much food from so many different restaurants. He just sat there ordering food maybe for the whole half-hour stretch there. And that's a lot of money. $1,000 is a lot of money. That's what would, like, freak me out if I were the parent. And I guess, you know, he was, he said, 9.5 out of 10 mad. The next day, 8 out of 10 mad. Now he's getting to the point where I guess he can laugh about it. Because to me, it's very funny. And, like, the photos that accompany the story of the kid holding up some money and all the food showing up on the kitchen counter, that is amusing but it's also not my kid and not my $1,000. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Um, I once ran up a $1,000 phone bill in one month when I was 19 years old because Whoa. I forgot to – I was like, do you remember analog back in the day? I was – What's that? It was like – it was either you were in analog mode, and if you were, remember roaming charges? If you weren't close to your radius of where your cell phone tower was, you got charged – uh, money oh and I had zero clue. I mean, obviously, I didn't know. And yeah, the bill came and it was a thousand dollars. And poor Judgy Joyce, she had to pay it off for me. No wonder she views you the way that she does. I feel like this has been developed over a number of years. I had completely forgotten about that. What year would that have been? This that was, might have been even before my time. This was in '99, the fall of. I will never forget it. I will never forget the minute I opened that bill. I'll never forget. I mean, think about at, when you're. I, I didn't get. I don't think I got a cell phone till '01. Yeah, this was. I was my first year out of college, and oh my gosh, I just remember like crying and crying. I thought my father was going to kill me. My poor mother, <laughs> bless her heart, she actually never told my father, and like she oh, made she payments. For you. That's yeah. actually nice. Yeah, she did because she knew he would kill me. Yeah, it would have been. It would have been bad. See, I wasn't allowed to have a cell phone at all. Until I had a car and a driver's license. So I was like 16, we got a permit. Then 17, I got the license. It was around then that I got the cell phone. And then it just gets earlier and earlier. Where my brother got one sooner before that. Then my sister, who's much younger, even sooner. And now you see, like, kids with tablets and phones who are in elementary school. I just don't know how I feel about that. But at least if you give your kid a device, you can control what's on it. As opposed to them using yours and spending a thousand dollars of your money see if this were me i probably would have spent like ten thousand dollars on the united app on a bunch of flights that's what i would have done this would have been my version of it <laughs> when i was that age we got to run back here tomorrow doing the show god willing from los angeles we will talk to you then in the meantime thank you for listening and have a great night Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.